0: Last episode, Arian Show 9, was the first hours of the third and final day of my and Alexander Bard's debriefing, a conversation that in my mind had already become the Alexander Bard sessions. This is the second to last episode, Arian Show 10, and next week will be the final episode of the first season. But we will probably return, considering there has been enough interest for a second season on Patreon, at least. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting this podcast. And now, Alexander Bard, enjoy. So before lunch, we were talking about archetypes and we were talking about children and grown ups. And I wanted to ask you something because we have this word in Swedish called lagom. Mm-hmm. And lagom means, I guess, not too good and not too bad, somewhere in the middle.
1: It depends on, it could either mean sufficient or it can mean mediocre.
0: Yes, but it never means optimum.
1: No, exactly. No, no, no. 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 It, 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 it basically, it assumes that the optimal state is to be avoided.
0: Yeah, and we have this uh, proverb, I suppose, that says Lagom is the best, mm-hmm. which is self contradictory uh, as a statement because Lagom can never be best. That's the thing with Lagom. It's not the best, it's just sufficient or mediocre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, this is the ideal we hold up, especially the social democrats in this country, and they have been for a hundred years. Lagom is the best.
1: I think its roots and are back to how you lived during the winters and a sort of semi-arctic climate, so you where to produce you use all the food yeah. during spring, summer, and autumn, and then get the harvest in, and then basically salted and dried food was your mainstay for the next five to six months and you also had to live in a very sort of close-knit uh, you know, labor- you, had, you actually had these tiny houses and you packed lots of people in them and they had to sort of survive on, on salted and dry food for months. Yes, and then and, and it makes sense. then Lagom made sense because you cannot eat more than that because actually we have to live on this food for the next four months.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so then abundance
1: was not part of it.
0: No, but then we moved in. I mean, Sweden moved into abundance in the early 1900s. We were already before the Second World War, one of the richest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So what happened is that social democrats, they have this lagom is best ideology. Mm -hmm. And that ideology was then superimposed, as far as I'm concerned, onto Swedish society. And everything had to adhere to this this idea that lagom is the best. And what happens when you hold up lagom as an ideal is that the best you get is lagom. Well... And the okay, rest so if you have abundance, shit.
1: if you have abundance and sufficiency no longer makes any sense. That means the only meaning left for Lagom when it's used in the Swedish language is mediocrity. Yes. And this is the celebration of the mediocre. Yeah. And, and the problem is when you celebrate the mediocre and you don't celebrate the ideal or the optimal, is that you will end up in a society where like, okay, don't don't make a fuss about yourself. Don't pretend you're anything. Uh, don't ever show any form of self-confidence because you're supposed to have none of it. Mm-hmm. So just stay low, stay out of the picture, you know, and
0: and don't don't ever try to do
1: anything brilliant.
0: Exactly, and and we promote people on the basis of this idea. Yeah. That's, so so everywhere you look in Sweden, when you look to the leadership, especially in political organizations. Logom is what you will find at the top. Even this damn podcast right now, because
1: we are two Swedes obviously speak English with a heavy Scandinavian accent, which we're proud of, to reach an audience outside of Sweden, of people who are interested in what's going on in Sweden and what kind of thinking could come out of this country. Okay. I'm sure they're sweet to say that, why do they speak English? Who do they think they are? Yes. Why don't they just pick Swedish and stay low and not think they're anything above the Swedish language? Like, nothing they ever say could ever be of interest to anybody outside of Swedish territory. So this is a perfect example of this logom attitude, and it's just so
0: damn boring. But it's also, I think, detrimental to the state of the culture because what happens is you get Stefan Löfven as prime minister, yeah. Yeah, because that's what we have now. We have a person who was supposed to be a welder but never finished his welding. Studies or whatever apprenticeship and then he didn't finish high school uh-huh. He went straight into the social Democrats And now he's the leader of the entire country and
1: stands in front of us on television and says that Something is profound and important and it really is just crap, you know Policies that are pretending to be important all of the really just destructive and meaningless
0: Are you but talking this, about the Samtike slogan now? I'm talking about all the yes, legislation but let, let's explain. The entire current
1: social democratic environmentalist government of Sweden do not have any ideas whatsoever. If they have ideas, it's only about wordings and phrases and things like that. And then ridiculous sort of nonsense symbolic policies instead of going to the nitty-gritty reality where policies should be. Because They they are definitely lagom. They're definitely mediocre. And I think actually the Swedish people deserve something better. They definitely need something better. And I think this government stinks.
0: I know you were talking generally, but at lunch you mentioned Samtikuslagen, which is basically a new law of consent. Yeah. So what we have in Sweden now for the last few years is some sort of rape epidemic or rapes are up. They're going up. At At least
1: least the reports of rapes are definitely up. Yes.
0: And probably the number of rapes
1: committed is also up.
0: Yes. And we have a problem because, um, and within the reported rapes, there's a problem because first of all, there's a lot of real rapes that are actually becoming more and more uh, prevalent and at the same time we have uh, an inflation of reported rapes because yeah. everything is suddenly rape so we're losing the meaning
1: of the word rape it used to be a really hideous crime and suddenly because it's now spread over all kinds of things like that's rape and that's rape and that's rape and suddenly it's just yeah but suddenly what was the hideous crime in all of this it's just like yeah, that's like sleazy sex, but it's not the same thing as rape, and suddenly so that's put into the category of rape. And then any form of sleazy sex, very often afterwards valued as sleazy, not when it actually happens,
0: yes. has become rape. But 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 either way, either, either, way, either if it's uh, because real rapes are up, or because there's infl- inflation in reporting rape, what you have is a government instead of what problem are they dealing with when they're introducing a law of consent?
1: Oh, they're just scared of the opinion out there, and there's a lynch mob out there that's completely crazy and stupid, and they fall into the lynch mob and think the lynch mob, they have to serve the lynch mob. And it's what... complete populism. Yes. It doesn't make a difference. If anything, the sum tickers or the law of consent makes it worse for women. It makes it harder to say that, did you not want or did you want this? Because you actually have to know beforehand if you wanted or wanted something and suddenly it's legal or illegal and you're in a really, really dangerous zone. A lot of sex is lezy, A lot of sex is lezy, and it's a turn on, both for men and women. If you understand how sexuality works, it's never going to be easy. The whole area of sexuality is always going to be incredibly complicated because morality begins and ends with sexuality. sexuality was the very force that we had to control in the original nomadic tribe and that's fiendishly difficult to do and we will never ever live in a society where sexuality is controlled so that everybody's pleased all the time and know in
0: advance what they want and this is the problem because it's an
1: infantile idea of sexuality when in reality the first thing we have to be adult about is our sex drives and once we're adult about the sex drive the first thing we realize is that it's complicated there are no easy solutions having said that Somebody raping somebody else, meaning you force yourself onto somebody, you're violent about it, you force yourself onto somebody and force them into such a sexual situation that they clearly say no to, is clearly what I would call rape. Yes. And that's actually one of the easier crimes in the rule of law to actually identify. Then to prove it is, of course, more difficult. But I mean, the first thing you should do if you're being raped is to think, how can I prove this afterwards if I want to get this guy into court and throw him into prison if you rape me? So it's also, if you're being raped, you also have to, ironically, in that situation, think, of, okay, could I get along with this? Because it would be worse if I didn't get along with it, but still consider it rape so that can afterwards prove that, it's been, that rape has been committed. Because it is a hideous crime.
0: No, I, I'm completely with you on the fact that Classical it's a... Classical hi- rape, let's call it that. Yes. Yeah, and, it, and that's... Not the
1: anything goes as rape category.
0: <laughs> and that's horrible in itself, that we have to divide rape into two categories, uh, where we call one real rape and the other one something else. Yes,
1: yeah, sex with the minor is sex with the minor, it's not necessarily rape. Sure, that could be a crime too, but it's not rape. And by categorizing it as rape, you're not helping the minors and, and you're not defending them against sexual assault at all. Sometimes they also have sex because they like to have sex and suddenly that's rape too. But well, then you're really on a slippery slope towards actually devolu- it's the devolution of the value of free sexuality to begin with. The sexuality of consent goes out the window. So you're actually punishing the whole system in the wrong end. You, you're introducing a law about sexual consent, meaning essentially you cannot have sexual relations with any other person without some kind of a legal contract there first, which is pathetic.
0: Exactly. And isn't this typical of Sweden? Because we were talking about children and adults as well. Yeah. Adults take care of their own sexuality. It's only children who run to mom when a game of kissing or whatever goes too far, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're introducing freedom, of responsibility from your own actions, basically. Yeah. you
1: might change your opinion about the sexual uh, affair you've had afterwards. That's okay, but you cannot change how it was to be perceived at the time. That means if you have some kind of a sexual affair with somebody, you have sex with somebody, whatever variety, and then afterwards, you change your mind about the whole experience, it doesn't mean that you can force the other person to then submit to your changed story, right? That is ridiculous. No, no, you have to be responsible for the sexual act when it actually happens. And that means that we cannot really look at rape as something where you don't resist in any way whatsoever. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't show any sign that you don't want to get involved with this at all, how, the, how damn is that other person going to know that you're not interested at all? It's, it's, just, it's just, it is a dynamic phenomenon simply, it has to be that way. I think a perfect example where they really look strange to the outside world was, of course, the scandal surrounding Julian Assange.
0: Precisely. So we're moving into that now. What happened with Julian Assange? Would you would you like to I know
1: Julian and Julian is quite a character and he has a very narcissistic personality and I would agree and I think we all would agree that sometimes he's used Wikileaks to his own advantage rather being interested in what WikiLeaks was set out to do. Wikileaks was set out to do that whistleblowers would finally have somewhere to go online and blow the whistle on people who misuse power. And Wikileaks would then look through the information they received and sort of judge whether they could actually pass this on forward, which is like an editorial work, the way journalists work. So I think Wikileaks is brilliant. I've worked for Wikileaks for, for many years and supported them in many ways. I think the idea is brilliant. Julian sometimes uses it more to its own advantage than actually for the cause itself. So he's quite a character. Let's, let's say that. I admit that, the first thing I do. But when you look at what actually happened to Julian in Sweden and these two cases with these two different women, where he was accused of sexual assault. And so far he hasn't been judged. As far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen any evidence whatsoever that any sexual assault actually happened. It was sleazy sex and he might have been nasty, but it wasn't even the girls that he had the sex with that really you know, got upset about it. It was actually the Swedish legal system, a couple of female policemen in Sweden, police women, and a female lawyer who tried to make a career out of this who actually sort of whipped it all up about the scandal about Julian Assange and tried to make it into this huge international affair where they would set an example that Julian Assange was kind of a sleazebag and this was not acceptable in Sweden. And then somehow Sweden would be seen as a more noble country than other countries because we we clearly set our limits to what men can do to women. Well, all that happened was that Sweden looked like this really miserable country where Swedes don't even know what they're doing any longer. They have no control over their own sexuality. F- f- women are suddenly reduced to little princes. have no idea what they're up to and what they're doing. They cannot say yes or no to anything until afterwards. And then they might feel it and they might change their minds constantly. To me, it just looks ridiculous. It is pathetic. I mean, this is not one of the proudest moments when I'm proud of being a Swede and talking to a foreigner when I look into the Julian Assange affair. It's just a big mess. I I thought it was... Very, very mishandled.
0: Yes. And uh, the two women, they're also very involved in the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't look very good. It looked as if, though, they knew uh, who he was. They were impressed by him. They wanted to have sex with him. They had sex with him, and then they regretted having had uh, sex with him.
1: At least the way they did have sex with him. So it's like like two girls who meet at a party and discover you both slept with the same guy. You you were essentially groupies Mm -hmm. to the same celebrity guy the same week. And you meet at the party and realize you both slept with him. And suddenly it becomes kind of an awkward situation. And then I, I think what happened was the girls basically said, let's go to the legal system and see if this is sexual harassment or not. Fair enough. So you report it to the police. You say that I'm not really sure myself. I think you should try this. Okay, and then somebody jumps on it, sees a celebrity guy, international celebrity, and understands that it's a perfect career opportunity. That's what happened. That's when it arrived on the desk of the Swedish policewoman. She saw it as a career opportunity. And whatever relationship she has with men, probably quite distorted, was suddenly the filter through which she saw these two girls that had sex with Julian Assange. Now, to me, that is absolutely obvious. So it becomes one huge story of a bad handling and incredibly expensive handling at Swedish and British taxpayers' expense of a story that essentially boils down to nothing but two groupies having sleazy sex with a celebrity guy. I don't see much else there. And I've gone through the facts. I've read all the reports. And I see nothing else there. And it it just shows how twisted Sweden has become. We have a form of new... Morality about sexuality But it's not the clear-cut morality It's the church That's okay, but that's a sin And that's okay, but that's a sin It's a mess It's kind of a very effeminate mess It's like, I don't know what I think about this But
0: I'm not totally comfortable with it And I reserve the
1: right to turn this into something That I can use as a weapon
0: so what we have here, basically, is grown-ups acting like children. Yes. Yes, and then asking the real grown-up in the room, which in their mind is the state, to take care of this for
1: them. Yeah, and that state then turns out to be a bunch of other infantiles that have no capacity to make firm decisions and are just floating around, don't know what to do, what's going on, and say, that oh, we have nothing to do with this or whatever. So it, it, Not even the state in this case acts as a grown-up. It's a children's game, and it's a power game. It's a game for attention, for control, and a form of neurosis towards female sexuality in itself.
0: They're afraid of their own sexuality. Yeah,
1: absolutely. How so? The female sexuality is very, very strong. Incredibly strong. It just doesn't come in the sort of even loops that the male sexuality comes. It's like the male sexuality sort of increases, And it comes to a certain point when men try to reach an orgasm. Once they reach an orgasm, they sort of calm down and then they return to this again. You can train yourself as a man to be more tantric, meaning you save your energy more. You put it more in your head, rather than in your dick and suddenly become more alive. You get more things done, okay? This is exactly why sex addiction is so draining on men. With women, women lived in the inner circuit in the tribe, meaning they demanded and got provision and protection. And provision and protection what a woman demands before she goes into the sexual mode which is perfectly understandable. See, as a man, you have to serve her. You have to be your gentleman. You have to prove you're worth her, etc. Once you're there, though, and you're going to bed, be prepared for a six- or seven-hour roller coaster ride. Because the female sexuality never gets enough. The female orgasm is not the end of anything. The female orgasm is just the next door open to the next orgasm.
0: But they can't handle that because they've been told that they're princesses and princesses don't like to have sex. They only like to have sex when the prince is really, really good and been good for a long, long time.
1: Well, the problem is in the social arena of women. Because women are also trained to attack the slut. Meaning that if you are the slut, if you suddenly in bed with a man or with several men start behaving like a slut, you become the very thing you've been trained to hate, to be disgusted with, which is a tragedy. So these two women
0: who had sex with Julian Assange, they woke up and realized that they were sluts, basically.
1: Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm not inside their psyche.
0: No, no, no. I don't I'm, think I should be we're there spe- either. We're speculating and we haven't named any names.
1: No, and I, I actually don't hold them responsible. It's just like a lot of the messes we have in Sweden with women acting in public in the weirdest possible way. Well, if you if say a woman is a narcissistic sociopath and she has a psychiatric diagnosis and she acts it out in the public, I don't actually think she's guilty. I think the media is guilty. For letting her act it out in public without somebody just taking her off, saying, baby, you're, you're really fucked up. We need to take you out of the picture before we destroy your life here in public. Okay? So it is, the, the problem is here, that we, it's a constant lack of elderly, wise women, or what I call a matriarchy. I yeah, see yeah, a yeah. lack of matriarchy in Swedish society. I don't see the older, stronger Women stepping in and from their wisdom and from the knowledge of how life works, telling the young girls actually, this is how you must operate. No, this I is don't... how you function to begin with. This is how you're nice to yourself. This is how you get what you want in life. Yes, without, but now these, without the enjoyment of these internal conflicts.
0: But now we've the women seem to thrive. We're at a point now because we've gone through this in the previous discussion. Yeah. So, uh, what, we're we're at a point now where we the previous hour we talked about why Sweden is going to shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I just stated Sweden is going to shit. Mm-hmm. And then we discussed why. Uh, and then we ended the last hour on that you shouldn't mix grown ups and children. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Yeah. And that was your words. So yeah. I was wondering what you meant by that. Because now we have a society, it seems, where children are actually in control.
1: Well, they are, and they're in grown up bodies. And that's what you get when you get young people who think they're ahead of everything and they know absolutely everything. And, and the voice of the elderly is lost. The voice of wisdom is lost. The voice of life experience is lost. The voice that says that we have to understand what it means to be human first before we start making moral judgments. We can't make moral judgments according to certain ideals of how we should be. We have to make moral judgments according to how we actually function. It's deeply unfair, it's grotesquely unfair to demand of the human being that they should be something they can't be. That's just nasty. And if you know... Can you exemplify? Well, if you know you're throwing immorality at somebody they cannot live up to, you've, you've really done it from the very beginning so that you can attack
0: them and you can control them. Illustrate it for me. Exemplify.
1: Well, say you're a boss and you employed somebody and you ordered them to, to do something, right? This is, this is a part of your employment. This is the thing you're supposed to achieve. And I'd like you to report it 14 days from now whatever. But if you give that task to somebody, it's not up to scratch. You're just being deeply unfair. That's bad leadership. And if you know you're giving the task to somebody who can't live up to it, you've then subconsciously at least done that precisely to be able to attack them at the end of the at the end of the whole process. And this is what happens very often in Swedish society. People are perfectly happy to give tasks to people they know they will never achieve. Well, why would they do that? Well, it's a control mechanism, isn't it? it's a potential for you to attack that person afterwards. And very often when it comes to women, when they're confused and they want to be controlled control of things, is that they make sure they attack you for something you can never do anything about. They give you a problem that has no solution. They hold you responsible for that, although you cannot provide the solution to the problem. So they can keep attacking you for the same failure again and again and again. So as a man in that case, you have to watch out because if that happens, you've lost it. If, if, if you're given a task you're supposed to achieve, make sure you can actually achieve this task. Do so with pride and brilliance and put forward the result and say, okay, you asked me to do this, here it is. Well, then you've succeeded, right? But before you take on a task, you have to think, could I actually do this? Or is this completely impossible for me to achieve? Do you have the resources? Do you have the means to have the talent to achieve this? Because if you can't, if somebody gives you a task you can never achieve, they probably really it to you. You better watch out and they're probably nasty to you because they want to control you. They want to be able to go back and say, well, you failed, shame on you, here's guilt, now I decide and I control, and you can never repay me for this debt.
0: I'm not sure if you're talking about men and women anymore or all of Sweden, (laughs) Uh, because it sounds to me like the Swedish overarching ideology, which I blame the Social Democrats for, because they've controlled this country for nigh on a hundred years, is a series of uh, expectations on the population. Well, that are fairly important. It's impossible. interesting
1: that we have a very large Islamic minority in Sweden that seems to work really well with Swedish culture, isn't it? Yes. There's, there's 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 a culture submission at play here. And once you're in one culture submission and move to the other one, you recognize that it's probably identical.
0: And we have let in more Muslim immigrants or migrants uh, for the last 40 years than mm-hmm. any other Western country, per capita, yeah. we win yeah. or lose, I, depending I on mind, your view. I don't
1: mind having living in a society full of Muslims. I've lived in countries full of Muslims before myself. No problem at all. I'm not a Muslim myself. I'm a Zoroastrian, not a Muslim. I don't believe in a moralistic religion that actually obliges me to submit to anything. Uh, I, I might prefer because that's Zoroastrian. What, uh, that's it, what Islam means. It is the cult of submission, the ultimate cult of submission. Well, you're supposed to submit to the tribe. You're, you're supposed to submit to the community because otherwise you're completely lost. So you, today you have to find your community or create your community and you submit to something bigger than yourself. If you have children, your children are more important than you are. Otherwise you're definitely a bad father or a bad mother. Mm-hmm. So there are things in life that are bigger than ourselves. And if we reach those states, where we discover something is bigger than ourselves. There, there's a joy in that that is absolutely natural because this is how the tribe survives. So I can understand the tribal context, absolutely. But a religion that preaches that you must submit to somebody else and that person's ideas without criticizing them, without questioning it, that is dangerous. That is the ultimate what the, the dictatorship is. Yeah. Right? you must submit no matter what. That is very, very different from saying, you must submit to a tribe because it serves your own interests.
0: But Sweden didn't only let in a lot of Muslim immigrants. The the Swedish social democrats, they've really opened a door for Islamists in Europe because they started very early on. I mean, Olaf Palme was pretty much the first Western leader who met with Yasser Arafat. And this was when the PLO was still, they still had genocide in their charter. Uh, they wanted but to... But
1: Yasser Arafat, yeah, but you have to remember this one thing. You have to keep two things apart, although they're related. And one of them is pan-Arab socialism. And these are the roots of Yasser Arafat, for example. These were the roots of, you know, Anwar Sadat. This was the roots of Egyptian, Syrian, Iraqi, the Ba'ath. I'm like
0: not that. sure... And then you have Islam. Yeah, you have to keep them no, but, separate. But, but I... No, I don't think I have to keep them separate. Yes, you no, should. But I'll tell you why. Because I think that there is... Islamists have been at it for more than 100 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Socialism came to the Middle East much later. Yes. Yes. So what I think for the Islamists, they saw it as a practical tool. They were on the side of the Soviet Union, so it was suitable if they wanted the support of the Soviet Union to create some sort of socialist Islamism.
1: Well, that's not what happened in the Arab world. If you go to, say, Cairo in the 1960s, and you go to, say, one of the leading Egyptian universities, and you go into the lecture halls and see what happened in there, people poked fun at Islam on a massive scale. They degraded it. They hated Islam. They weren't proud of it at all. So there was at least there was a rhetoric that was completely anti-Islamic, and that's actually what was held against them later. So when pan-Arab socialism and pan-Arab nationalism died in the 1980s, and Islamism took over, it was precisely because the Islamists came back and attacked it venomously. If you look at Iran, for example, which isn't Arab but still Muslim, uh, the the Shah represented nationalism. And the Shah was also very much upholding with the Zoroastrianism, which is my religion was popular at the time. So Zoroastrianism, Iranian nationalism were all intertwined and there was also strong social democracy in Iran at the moment. And the idea was to modernize Iran. The idea was there an Iranian version of Western modernism. And that's exactly when you had Khomeini and the revolution. It was so violent. You, you cannot really say that Khomeini and the Shah were on the same side. Well, then you can't really say that Nasser and Sadat were on the same side the Islamists. All right. That doesn't mean that socialism and Islam cannot have shared roots, because they do. They do, yes. indeed, and that's where a, I wanted a, to get. Yeah, so in the same environment, socialism can be popular for a while, especially through attacking Islam, and then in the same environment, Islam or Islamism can be popular for a while by attacking socialism, because they actually do share the same roots. Yes, well, And they, what do you roots, mean by the same roots? Well, it goes back to Mastak. So Mastak, if you've studied the history of socialism, the overall history of socialism, the idea of, of the socialist community, it goes back to Mastak, who was a kind of religious reformer in the Middle East, in, in what today we consider to be rock in Iran. So that would be like Mesopotamia and eastwards. Right? When was this? Fifth century. So it's 400 years after Christ. And Mastak came to power because the Zoroastrian priesthood was very corrupt at the time. This was the Sassanid Empire, days of the Iranian of the Iranian Empire. And at least briefly for a while, he also controlled quite a large territory. And he did it through its cult its sect of masochism. And he was essentially the first communist. He said that the, the guys from the upper class must marry the women from the underclass, and the men from the underclass must marry the, 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 the women from the upper class. And we should make all these class distinctions extinct. We should get rid of the classes, we should, we should split up the resources of society evenly and then we live in a sort of heavenly paradise. And why I know Nasdaq really well is of course in the history of Zoroastrianism. This is the ultimate heretic of the Zoroastrian history. So he, he came from inside Zoroastrian culture but he was not a Zoroastrian himself. He was the ultimate heretic. But it's incredibly interesting because what, what happens later is that when Muhammad started spreading Iran about 200 years later he discovered the heritage of Mastak and held Mastak in very high regard. And Mastakism has been a popular idea within Islam, both within the and Islam ever since. And very much the ideas about the Ummah, you know, which is also brilliant within Islam, this idea of the community, the tribal aspect of Islam, that, that the community is at the center and the community itself is sacred. These ideas are very Mastakist. But of course, later, when you look at the heritage of Western socialism and, and the idea of a communist utopia, you discover that Mastak was again studied because you go back to the 5th century and you discover that in the Middle East. He was against they, what? No. If you if you study socialist history, there was a great romanticization of Mastak because Mastak was always considered the first socialist, or the first communist, if you like. Meaning that he failed with his project at the time, we should repeat that project now, and this time around we should succeed. So, Islam and socialism have shared roots. That can explain why the Arab world could move so quickly from socialism and then to Islam, and from Islam and back to socialism. But it doesn't explain the same way why Iran moved from Iranian nationalism over to Islamism and back, because there it's a class issue. It's just two separate cultures. Islamism was strong in the Iranian countryside. The Shah ignored the countryside. He looked down on people in the countryside and in the small towns of Iran, which is where the imams and ayatollahs grew really, really strong Mm -hmm. and created an underground. So when the Shah finally fell, to his own surprise, it was because Tehran, the major cities, did not control the country at all. The country was essentially controlled by the people in the countryside. And then suddenly the Ayatollahs took over and Khomeini arrived in Iran, you had the Iranian revolution. So Iran is still today as a culture tormented with the conflict between the roots of Iranian Islamism, which is very much the countryside, conservative lifestyles, old way of living. And you know, a lot of Islamic values tied to that and in Shia Islam, especially. And, and the opposite of that is sort of an urban life which is way more secular, includes other religions like Zoroastrianism, Christianity, and Judaism way more, it is multicultural and cosmopolitan in a genuine sense, which which Iran has always been, by the way. It has always been a multicultural country. So you have the division between these two different classes or cultures in Iran that constantly, you know, are at each other's throats. It's a bit similar to America in the sense that you know, Trump voters were working class and came from the flyover states and, and the core of the Obama and Clinton voters lived on the coast and they were in tech and they lived in a very urban lifestyle. So you, you, you have the same division in Iran that you have in America. Whereas if you go to the Arab world, you don't have that kind of division at all. It's all the same thing. So if you go to Damascus and then you go to Homs and then you go to Aleppo in Syria, you discover these cities are pretty similar to each other. You don't have the class divisions as clearly as you do, say, for example, in Iran. So in the Arab world, you always return to the mythology of the Ummah. And the question is then is how do you create and maintain community? And the community is held as sacred. And this, of course, is something that socialism and Islam share. This is why you never had a strong liberal tradition in the Arab world. You never had a strong secular tradition. You never had a strong tradition of an alternative culture. And besides Turkey and Iran, you never really had multiculturalism or cosmopolitanism either in the Arab world.
0: Yeah, but let's bring this back to Sweden then, because we've been blessed for the last four decades uh, with a growing number of Muslims in our country. Most of them probably not that devout. Exactly. But but, but and they've, all joined, so. they've
1: all joined leftist parties. When they politically engaged, they joined the Social Democrats more than anything. There also many of them had joined the environmentalist parties. And the Muslims who came to Sweden to escape Islam and Islamic procession. They are the ones that joined the liberal parties, like Hanif Bali, for example. Yeah. So 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 the people who left the Middle East and escaped Europe, Sakina Madon. Hanif Bali, many of the public intellectual Swedes have often very, very often a Kurdish or Iranian background. And they escaped the Middle East to get out of this trap that they lived in there. And they embraced secularism, liberalism when they arrived in the West. They joined liberal parties. But the vast majority of Muslims who stayed Muslim in Sweden and decided to go political either became some kind of leftist or environmentalist. Yeah. So there are plenty of them in the current Swedish government. And they've been involved. There's been a lot of scandal. We discovered these guys are actually Islamic. They really are. No, but then no. The question is, what's the really difference between social democracy and Islam to begin with?
0: That's what I want to know. Yeah. Because... Very as, little. As far as I'm concerned, Sweden let Islamism into the West. That is Sweden's fault, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Because Palme was the one who made Arafat okay. And with him came pretty much everything else.
1: Well, again, problem with Arafat and Islamists is that Islamists hate Arafat. Arafat is an Arab nationalist. So I don't, I don't completely agree. He let an Arab agenda into the West? Well, I don't have a problem with that. I think that you and I have to debate these guys down and they might very well live here because Westerners have lived in the Middle East forever. We moved around always. If you go to, say, Izmir in Western Turkey, that was a city with a large Jewish and large European population until modern times. You can go to Tunisia, you go to Jerba. Yeah, probably the largest Jewish colony outside of Israel in the Middle East lived on the island of Jeroboam until modern times too And there's still thousands of Jews who live there So Jews and Europeans, Christians have lived in the Middle East And I'm all for multicultural in the sense that I like cosmopolitanism I think I'm obliged to debate with the Muslims and set limits to their agenda if I don't agree with Islam And if they want to form a political party, they should So. I don't see Islam's arrival in the West in itself as a problem, but I see Islam's arrival in the West. No, and, I didn't and, say and, no, Islam. I fact, said
0: Islamism.
1: Okay, well, even if it's Islamism, the weakness of our culture is exposed to the fact that we haven't been able to debate them down properly.
0: No, we don't debate things in our own culture. So well, then... How can you debate thank you, something Thank you with for someone? arriving
1: in that case, because we need something like Islamism in the West in that case to really deal with our own decadence. So I don't see that as problematic. Just like I I see sometimes a conflict can be really healthy for a society because you need to find out who am I, who are we, what are we doing? Where are we heading?
0: And that is something you learn about yourself in conflict or at least crisis.
1: You do. Or as I said, people who don't like Donald Trump. Well, you should be thankful you got Donald Trump now, because if you didn't have Donald Trump now, the White House, you probably have had something even worse four years from now. Yeah. With Donald Trump in the White House, at least the opposing your opponents got the presidential candidate. He won the election, sitting in the White House, and you got something to be an opponent too. Yeah. So you have to, you, it clarifies your argumentation. This is for me the strength of the opponent is my challenge. It it forces me to rethink my arguments and my strategy, and it improves me. It makes me more brilliant.
0: I'm not sure that pos- that's possible, my dear. But uh, let's move back into the... Because as far as I'm concerned, Palme met Arafat, I think, in Tangier in 1974. This was like just a few days before Arafat went up into the UN without even having a country. Pistol on his hip and, an, according to himself, a symbolic olive branch in one hand. And he said in his speech, I come with an olive branch in one hand, but don't let it fall. Because he had the pistol on his hip, so, you know, he could speak softly, speak softly and carry a big stick, you know, Mm -hmm. the expression. And this is why I'm always yelling, because I'm not in the habit of carrying sticks around with me.
1: You know, I like both Israelis and Palestinians, because I like tough guys. And they are. And the reason why the Israelis have won the conflict so far is simply because the strategy has been superior.
0: I... Personally, think that they also have better principles of society.
1: Could help, could not help. Actually, democracy in itself is not a guarantee you're going to win a war.
0: No, no, no. I'm no. not saying it's a guarantee that you win a war, but I but think it's, what part the result th- it's part of strategy.
1: It's let's part of strategy. It's part of strategy because yes. if
0: let's say you win a war and then you have to build your society and you build it on unsound principles, it will come crashing down anyway sooner or later.
1: Well. You know me, and you know how I talk about empowerment all the time. So you could take the same thing that I say about a weak matriarchy being the problem rather than a strong patriarchy. You could say the same thing with Israel and Palestine. I travel to both countries on a regular basis. So the problem is not Israel's strength. The problem is Palestine's weakness, whatever Palestine is. To me, Palestine is the remnants of what Jordan and Egypt left behind after conflict with Israel that was then invented as a national identity. It was. Me- means and, it, and, and it's I you're an Arab and you live in a territory where Israel is making claims and you become a Palestinian because of it. So it's kind of a negation as an identity to begin with. Before the Meaning creation being,
0: of Israel, everyone yes. who lived there was a Palestinian.
1: Exactly, which made more sense. So, yeah, you know, in the perfect world, you would have a, a secular cosmopolitan state called Palestine, whatever, and it includes and gives a prominent role to Jews. Okay. That's the one-party state, the old version of
0: it. But no, none of the Palestinian entities that are calling for a separate state for themselves want Jews to be able to live in that separate state once it's set up. That is in both the PA and the Hamas Charter. Well, the Hamas Charter you've got, you've is got all a
1: couple of million Israeli Arabs who obviously are comfortable living next door to Jews while being Arabs.
0: Well, they, the they the are comfortable, are the, the Israeli Arabs are more comfortable living in a Jewish country than they would be living in an Arab country. And, and many if you of ask them a... also say so. Yes.
1: So you can still be pro-Arab rights, live in a country where Jews are even dominant, and still make a good living and be perfectly happy.
0: Yes. I'm not Or at if... least less dissatisfied well, than you'd be in Jordan.
1: Well, we've had a political correct version of this whole dilemma for the past four years called the two-party state. Obviously, it's not happening. And if it isn't happening, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to begin with, okay? Then the question is, who dictates the conditions for a one-party state for the entire territory? And I'm interested in that question. And I think the Israeli Arab is key to that, absolutely key to that, because the other two sides are either so into their own interest or so corrupt they don't even speak for anybody. Yeah. If if, if the Israelis wanted to split the Palestinians in two or three or five and thereby just control them the way Bismarck did, by just making sure that they cannot even be unified, the Israelis have certainly succeeded. They were very, very clever in doing that because the Palestinians don't speak with a unified voice. And when they do, it's either too hysterical and extremist or it's just simply corrupt which is essentially the West Bank and Gaza today.
0: Well, you know, I believe that you you brought up the fact that the Palestinian Arab national identity was formed in the 60s, I mean, even before the occupation began officially. So I see them just as the tip of the spear of the Muslim Ummah. And Mm -hmm. I think the existence of Israel is uh, uh, the myth of centrality, as it's called, that if you just solve the problem in Israel, everything in the world will be okay. Everything in the Middle East will become democratic. They have to hide a lot of facts. You have to
1: hide that millions of Israelis escaped Arab countries like Yemen and Iraq, and were driven out, and were driven out, and came to Israel as the promised land. Like half of Israel's population comes from the Middle East, and they were driven out. Baghdad was full of Jews. The only place left in the Middle East with a large Jewish population outside of Israel is Iran, ironically. Yeah, I know. Iran has a large Jewish population, big synagogues in Tehran, because Iran officially has to be pro-Jews but anti-Israel. Yes. So, so they arrive at that dilemma. But um, in general, I mean, you could either see this as a trade in land, like we give up certain territory, which might be smaller but is urban and very expensive, in return for getting some other territory somewhere else. Now, of course, then the Palestinian Arabs can essentially say that, well, we didn't get any territory back. It's not we who got the back streets of Baghdad back from the Jews. Left, which is absolutely true. Yes. So this was completely dysfunctional. It wasn't organized. It was just pe- people escaping one direction and people escaping the other direction. And ironically, this happened at the same time as a much larger movement of people between India and Pakistan. When Pakistan was set up. Pakistan was at least as artificial as Israel could ever be. It was just thrown into India as a concept of a certain homeland for a certain population. And then, of course, Muslims and Hindus changed places with each other in a really chaotic state. Many of them became poor and millions died. It was a huge, huge tragedy. But at the end of the day, if you look back 100 years later, you're probably going to say that eventually having a Jewish state in the middle of the Middle East was a good thing for the Middle East. You're probably going to say that, Yeah, getting Pakistan and Bangladesh was at least better than trying to unify 300 million Muslims under the rule of a billion Hindus, which would definitely have been constantly ongoing warfare. So something that can look really tragic and messy over, say, 34 years can still 300 years later be the best thing you could have done at the time. But this, this is the problem with conflicts,
0: but yeah, but what what I'm saying about the myth of centrality basically is if you think that Everything is going to solve itself just because you solve the conflict between Israel and Palestine This is just the old anti-semitic myth that Jews control all the world and if, yeah. and, 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 and if you just solve the Jewish problem Then everything else will follow and it's just deeply untrue. The reason why Israel is such an important conflict is in people's minds because it is the Holy Land. So for 2 billion Muslims, it's a fucking insult that Israel exists where mm-hmm. it exists. And if it was Muslim territory and not Jewish, then you can bet your ass that a bunch of Catholics and Protestants would be really, really upset that the Holy Land was in Muslim hands. mm mm-hmm. So what you have is two really large world world religions who believe mm-hmm. that this is m- the most important place on earth. Mm-hmm. And if we can just solve this place, then everything will fall into place. But it won't. It's just... Complete fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and The Middle East thrives
1: on conflicts. Yes, exactly. It's river valley cultures and it's Bedouins and And deserts. And they had
0: conflicts long before Israel was created. And they will have conflicts long after Israel disappears, if it does disappear.
1: I'll give you an example of when Sweden can sometimes be a good country to come from. You know, pretty decent. And it's when I go into a conversation with a bunch of Arabs and a bunch of Persians over dinner in Dubai. And they start arguing about whether it should be called the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf. And you you realize there's no solution to this. And you say, could it just call it, say, the Gulf of Peace? You know, yeah. give it an ironic name, and none of you has the name, and that's a completely unacceptable solution. Yes. So then you realize this is how the Middle East works, and then I remind you that I come from Sweden. We don't argue about the Baltic Sea being called the Baltic Sea. They're three tiny Baltic countries. They why don't we give the name of the sea to them instead of just referring to something else? Actually, in Sweden, in Sweden, we still call it Ostsjön, which is the, the sea east of Sweden. Yeah. Okay. So so in Sweden, the Swedish language, of course, it's our sea. It would be in any country's language. The, the sea that is closest to your territory, of course, carries your own name. But we don't mind in Sweden when we speak our Scandinavian English to say that we live next to the Baltic Sea. No, That's okay. No, no. Let the Bolts call it the Baltic they Sea. They have nothing else. At least then it isn't the Russian Sea. It's a shitty puddle. Well, Let at least it isn't, it. it isn't the Russian Sea. So. And this is the problem. You, you, you say, well, diplomatically, we just call it the Gulf of Bahrain, or we could call it the Gulf of Peace. And, and so that we don't have to think Sunni versus Shia. We don't have to think Persian versus Arab. But it turns out that the hatred and the mutual fascination between Persians and Arabs is like a long-lasting marriage between two people who constantly argue with each other and they love it too much. They just cannot split up. They go on and on and on. And I, I, basically think we're heading that direction with the Israelis and the Arabs too when it, well, say the Israelis and the Palestinians, because I don't want to involve the Israeli Arabs, okay? So the Israelis and the Palestinians to me is more and more becoming this conflict of two sides. I love their conflict too much to ever want to have a resolution. Well, to. I, I, I think it's Westerners who dream about peace. I don't hear anybody in Israel-Palestine talking about it. They just I talk think about Israelis a pragmatic dream about, status
0: quo. I think Israelis dream about peace. I think the Arabs have almost no interest in peace. I don't believe that the Palestinians are separate people. I believe they belong to the whole Muslim Ummah, uh, primarily Arab but mostly Muslim. I think Muslim is the overarching identity in the Muslim world. Muslim first. I think Arabs.
1: Arab is, I think Arabs. No, are I think. Christians. There are a lot of Christian Arabs on the West Bank. You can't say there you can't say the Muslims all of a sudden
0: No, but that's what I'm saying
1: Palestine had the largest population of non-Muslim Arabs in the entire Middle East. Yes So if if the Palestinian identity deserves its own identity as being non-Arab They can have their own identity. They
0: can construct their own identity in the 60s I have no problem with them getting their own identity Yes, but but to claim that this is a thousands of years old identity is simply untrue. It's not true true and also i think they did this for tactical reasons because they realized that now is this is this was this started in the anti-colonial area where all these colonies became free and they and they looked to tunisia and they looked to algeria and they said oh if they can do it then we can do it and they did it, but they didn't do it for Palestinian national statehood, primarily, I think. But I think they did it because they wanted to be the tip of the spear when Islam reclaimed the Holy Land.
1: Well, if you go back to 1947, the birth of Israel, when Israel was attacked by his neighbors, nobody talked about a Palestinian nationality at all.
0: No, they talked about an Arab-Israeli well, conflict. it was
1: Jordan, it was Syria, and it was Egypt that attacked Israel. And... And also All of them are Arabs I agree with you I agree with you This is one identity That doesn't mean It cannot have claims To territory No It doesn't mean It cannot claim That we've lived here For thousands of years Because a lot of them have Yes This territory Was well, not, not, not ever really, but... Jewish superiority It was not ever Arab superiority The, the whole the, What we call The Holy Land today Running from You know the, 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 from, 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 from the Golden Heights In the north All the way down To the Sinai, Sinai Desert Was always mixed It was yes. always mixed Has always been mixed. Well, some people 2, were more on years. the sea some are more farmers, some are along the Jordan River and there were other areas in there so it's it's, it's always been a mixed territory so, but, but I, I have no problem with the state of Israel if it allows non-Jews to live in it, which it does Yes, I don't per se have a problem with the state of Israel I, I hope any- it eventually can go more secular rather than being religious, but on the other hand I have problems with secularism too It's just another form of religion, another form of dogma you have to submit to. So I don't see that as problematic in itself. This is exactly what I'm saying. I no longer believe in the two-party state. I just don't believe in it. I don't see it happening.
0: No, I have also reached uh, a point in my life where I think one side must be allowed to win.
1: Well... When to include the other side, you don't have to win by beating the other guys senseless, you could include them into the territory and give them a specific role, that means a peace negotiation between Israel and Palestine, it's not about them splitting up a territory in a dysfunctional map that looks ridiculous on the map, right? Rather, you look at it and so okay, we keep the territory as a whole, we have one state that actually functions, but that state to include the further territory and a large population of Arabs has to make certain maneuvers to make that a successful integration.
0: No, but I don't think that... that there is that, I don't think that possibility exists Yes, at I all. think that is the yeah, only but, but possibility. But let me finish, because what I believe is that Israelis want peace. They've tried to make peace. I don't think the Arabs want peace. I also think that this shift... I they... don't think anybody
1: wants peace. I think you're hypocritical here. I don't meet anybody in Israel, hand on the heart, tell me they want peace. They just want to be successful. They, they want are. to have a good life. What? Peace is not about you and your family. Peace is a formality. That means if no bombs are blown up in the streets and you don't have to go to the military to shoot people because you made them opposite side busy shooting each other. And you don't have then to And you spend- actually, for practicality, have peace at that moment. And you're perfectly happy with it. And you also see other countries that have reached peace and become decadent of 200 years. And you realize the fact that we're constantly in formerly in a state of war means we're on our toes, which means we achieve a lot of things. It might not be such a bad idea to keep that momentum, which means you keep the status quo. Peace is nothing but a formality. It's nothing but a formality.
0: Maybe. I don't think Israel is geographically positioned to acquire peace in the near future. But I also seriously, I I, I think seriously, Israel offered uh, the PLO so many chances of peace when Arafat backed out of the last agreement. He did so. Maybe he wanted to say yes. Maybe. I, I can give him the benefit of the doubt, but he, he knew he couldn't because if he had said yes to the peace treaty, he would have been killed by his own side. The but honest I, truth is... I don't is believe that he ever hon- had the intention, if but I'm thi- saying I'm willing to give him the benefit of a doubt.
1: But Aron, if you think it's more Hegelian fashion, maybe both sides are lying. Then the question is, who came up with the mythology of the two-party state and has tried to hang on to it all the time for its own prestigious reasons? The West. It is America and Europe that invented the two-party state solution and has tried to force it on the Israelis and the Palestinians. And what it constantly faces is that they don't recognize the fact that neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians have any interest in that kind of peace settlement, any version of it. They have an interest in maintaining the conflict. Especially when they're not killing each other, but you can just pretend they're at the state
0: of war. But how much do you think this has to do with Holocaust guilt from the West?
1: Hardly anything, because if you're seriously guilty, you deal with something. This is just pretending. This is pretension. If you call the cards on the West, no, no. If you call the cards, on Holocaust guilt drew the state of Israel and the obsession with the state of Israel and the West in the 1950s, 1960s. And that flipped around to the opposite, which was the guilt over the guilt, which only made things worse. Yeah. And then you have the modern anti-Semitism that you have in Western Europe and North America today, which comes from the social justice warriors and identitarians. And it's terrible. It's just as terrible.
0: It comes so, from the socialist movement in Sweden when of Palmer met Arafat. Well, That's were, what I'm saying. They were
1: pro-Israel first.
0: No, I don't think... The Social no, Democrats, were, no, as that, long no. as the
1: Labour Party ruled Israel, no. they were pro-Israel and ignored the Palestinians. Then they switched sides. Completely. I
0: deny this vehemently because... Uh, I think that the Swedes helped the Nazis during the war, and they lost, and they realized, okay, Israel is going to come into existence. Swedes were already heavily involved in the UN at the time. They partook in trying to divide up the country between the Arabs and the Israelis. You know our Count Folke Banadot, who's part of our royal family, he yeah. went down to Israel to try to negotiate this peace. And what happened was, he was shot by Jewish nationalists. Mm -hmm. They just stopped his motorcade, leaned into his car with double machine guns and shot him full of holes, screaming, die, you fucking anti-Semite. Now, why would they shoot a Swedish diplomat to death, screaming, die, you fucking anti-Semite? Maybe because Volker Bernadotte wasn't as good during the war as he later made out to be. And the same goes for the Social Democratic Party. They helped the Nazis, they denied helping the Nazis, Mm They had to cover it up for 25 years under the the, the then Prime Minister Tage Lander. He did mm-hmm. the whole cover-up. Mm-hmm. And then Palme came in and they had been supportive of Israel for about 20 years. Before that, they hated the idea of Jews and they didn't like the idea of a Jewish state. And then Palme comes in Arabs
1: more, just like just like many others. They did. do
0: not hate the Arabs more. Uh, and I will. Because Palme meets Arafat. Arafat and Palme, they both have Nazis as ideological leaders, mm. right? Palmes, I comes from a family where they were pure Nazi, like all of them were Nazi. I'm not mm. saying he was a Nazi because they were Nazi, because I don't believe in... Uh, uh what you call it sin that is inherited from the father. I don't believe yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, he could be whatever he wants to, but I know that his maternal grandfather was the teacher of some of Hitler's chief ideologues. He was Baltic German nobility. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So and and so he comes into the Social Democratic Party in the late sixties, he becomes prime minister, right? Yeah. And he meets Arafat. Arafat as ideological master was uh uh, Hitler's move too. I
1: agree, but Palme did not rule the Social Democrats during the Targary Lander period. He was just a youngster. Yes, but this then is... Then he took over and I say they switched. N- they switched completely exactly. against Israel and, this is... and no, pro but, but,
0: but this is what happened as far as I'm concerned. Targary Lander did the cover-up. So they had to support Israel during the cover-up or because of guilt, whatever you like to call it. Olaf Palme comes in, he becomes prime minister. Israel wins the six-day war and then suddenly Palme switches... Yeah. And, it, and it's, and you, it's it, for me, as a, I, Aaron, as a Swedish I Jew, wait, wait, it's, wait, wait, it's like he lifts a lid on a fucking boiler. I'm just
1: going to interrupt you for once, because you could also look at what people's behavior in Sweden were. In the 1950s and 1960s, tons of Swedes went to Israel to work in the kibbutzes. Yes. The idea of a socialist nationalist Israel, a Zionist social democracy, was very popular in Sweden, and this was also an idea cherished by European Jews who settled in Israel. Absolutely. And they controlled Israel completely Absolutely. until the Arab Jews became more prevalent, had more of a voice in the 1970s, and then the conflict between them went to the forefront because the Arab Jews knew what they were dealing with. They were dealing with the Arabs. They knew what they came from, and they saw them as their enemy. So with Palma comes the switch, but it's also a form of anti-Americanism. Yes. Because palm built is being anti-American. And then, of course, Israel became America's ally. Originally, Russia was more of an ally than America was to Israel United and, and Sweden,
0: I think, but was also very happy that the new country of Israel was going to be a social democratic country. Yeah. They had succeeded in, in making the Jew a social democrat. Yeah. Maybe they were going to become Swedes. Let's just cheer them on, send all our kids to the kibbutzes, teach them to be Swedish, and they will be Sweden in the Middle East.
1: But suddenly it became a country that was capitalist, that was alt-right from an Arab perspective rather than a European perspective and also became an ally of the big evil America. And then suddenly it served the Swedes to talk about Palestine and the Arabs and and be on their side. And this is the heritage that Margot Valdstein personifies today with their ridiculous and reckless policies. So this is where Swedish social democracy got stuck. And of course, Swedish youth don't go to kibbutzes any longer. Only if you're Jewish, you would do that. It's just like Swedish social democratic youth in general don't go to Israel any longer and work in the kibbutzes. So you could look at the actual numbers of how many Swedes visit Israel and for what reasons. Yeah. Today, it's just a few church ladies and wild guys like you and me go to Israel who like it. Well, and there, are
0: some, lef- and guys, there right? are some young leftist Swedes who go and act as human shields for Hamas and Gaza. So, they're not even let in. No, no, not anymore. But, but uh, there have been Swedes going to oh, do yeah, that. Oh, yeah,
1: they're so full of themselves, it's incredible, right? So, yeah, it's a really complex situation, but it's not unique. No, you, no, you can no, compare... Uh, you no, can, I don't think it's no, unique. I no, don't think... I think that's exactly what it isn't. It isn't unique, and yeah, that's
0: what's important to stress. It, but when people talk about how important this conflict is, I always uh, ask them, and how do you feel about Nagorno-Karabakh? Yeah, because that's a conflict between Muslims and Christians. It's been going on for since forty eight. They have approximately twenty two thousand dead, which is the extent of all the dead in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Yeah, the, the conflict same between
1: si- Ethiopia and Somalia, yeah. which
0: is never solved. Ethiopia still has a
1: huge territory, even a province called Somalia of Ethiopia because it contains a Muslim majority. Okay, Ethiopia itself is an old Christian culture. So you have the division between Christians and Muslims in Ethiopia and Somalia too, and it's unsolvable. It's a, it's a conflict that serves both sides, and it's precisely when Western peaceniks come into the picture and think about two-party states or finding a solution where you divide these two and they don't intermingle with each other, when in reality it's the intermingling that actually has, has to happen. You can only achieve peace between two cultures when they start marrying each other. Before they start marrying each other, that's not what happens. It's segregation, and segregation is nothing but a conflict frozen in time. That means it will pop up again sooner or later. And I see Israel and Palestine this way. What Israel has cleverly done over the past two decades is that it makes sure that there's an ongoing conflict somewhere in the Arab world that keeps everybody busy so they don't actually have to go to war, meaning they maintain a status quo, which actually in reality is peace, although it formally is war. Well, that's no different from South and North Korea. That's no different from Taiwan and mainland China. Well, that works. No, but that's why... And what people are interested in, if you go into villages and small towns of a the country, they're just interested in whether it works or not. They want to avoid an open conflict because that's really harmful to them. What formerly is war or peace, they don't care about. And when I go to Israel today, all the people I talk to say the same thing. Well, as long as the rocket's do not hit us, which they don't at the moment, that is for our practical purposes peace. Yep.
0: And, so, and you're right, because all the other conflicts in the world, some of them definitely more heinous than the Israel-Palestinian. They don't get enough attention. And it's because we focus on this single conflict, and I think that conflict has the focus it has because of anti-Semitism, basically. You you, you don't have to call it anti-Semitism, you can call it the myth of of Jewish dominance or whatever. But you see, and I'm not saying that Jews aren't really good or successful. They are but you're giving us way too much credit. Yeah. I mean, we're like all humans. So we're if, you barely look at, if you look on. at
1: the Middle East today, you ascribe a metaphysical dimensions to the conflict between the Israelis and the Arabs, which is completely untruthful. It's not. Whereas the real nasty conflict in the Middle East is the war against the Kurds. Yeah. It has been for decades. It's monstrous. You have the largest population on the planet with a clear ethical identity that doesn't have its own home country. That is the least decent thing you could do, is to force together a certain, at least a core Kurdistan and give it independence. And I think what the Turks and what the Iranians and what the Arabs and what the Americans are doing together to betray the Kurds is actually opening up for the Israelis to find a really loyal ally in the Middle East. And I think the, I think the alliance eventually between the Kurds and the Israelis is going to be very, very interesting and very, very fruitful. And to serve it so most of all for the Kurds themselves. I have a big, big heart for the Kurdish population, and I think the way Kurdistan is being treated is is beyond shameful. It's just disgusting. It's just disgusting. And that is the real material conflict involving 30 or 40 million people in the Middle East. It's way, way bigger than the conflict between Israel and Palestine.
0: I think there might actually be more. I've been talking to a few Kurds, and they they promised me they're 60 million.
1: Well, the thing is this. If you were allowed to choose between Zoroastrianism and Islam in Iran today, millions of Iranians would be Zoroastrians. And if you were allowed to choose whether you were a Kurd or a Turk, or whether you were a Kurd or Iraqi, or Kurd or Iranian, or Kurd or Syrian, you could choose between these identities, you'd probably more go towards 50 or 60 million who would recognize the Kurdish identity if it benefited them, if they dared to. Well, you don't as long as you don't have a home country, do you? No. But they, you know... There are millions of Kurds in Istanbul alone.
0: Yeah, there are, uh, there are
1: millions of Kurds in Damascus and Baghdad.
0: There are parts of Tel Aviv that are only Kurdish, as far as yeah. Yeah. They
1: breed so well. There are they many do. Of them.
0: They do. They do. They're very horny. And it, uh, it's a crazy thing. And it also th-
1: goes back to the, the culture, the Iranian, the Iranian history. This is essentially the Medea and Persia. I mean, the, the Iranians were always two major peoples.
0: One final thing I wanted to say about the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is what I still call it, uh, is that it's not so much a conflict. It started to turn around in the last two years with Saudi Arabia trying to thaw itself up and and move closer to the West and recognizing what problems they have with their own extremism. Israel has just discovered gas in the the Mediterranean, just outside its coast. And
1: Saudi Arabia are about to build a huge city of three to four million people close to the Israeli border. Because yep. they want to have the next major building project in Saudi Arabia. It's going to be placed next to Jordan, Egypt, and Israel, where thriving activity goes on without an oil economy. There's no point in building another huge Saudi Arabian city bordering the United Arab Emirates if oil is, is becoming less important. You better build in the part of Saudi Arabia which is closest to technological universities and where you can expand in the future. So Saudi Arabia has a great interest in modernization and in getting closer to Israel. That means it's no longer an Arab-Israeli conflict. You're going to see the Arab world split in its relationship to Israel. And Israel is going to milk it yeah. heavily, meaning you can then resort to just being a conflict over Israeli bordering territory.
0: Which is what it is. Which is
1: exactly what it is. Which is exactly what it is. And if I recommend a Palestinian, I mean, today's 25 years old and want to make a career, I said, why don't you just move to Dubai and have a career? I know you're leaving behind a certain country. Your grandmother probably claimed she had an apple orchard or something like that. Yes, but people have always done that. People have always given, given up on certain territory if something else could be conquered somewhere else. Half of Europe did that in the 19th century by moving to North America. And the fact is that a Palestinian uh, Palestinian employees are incredibly popular everywhere in the Arab world because they work hard. They're well-educated and work hard. It's the Lebanese and the Palestinians that everybody wants to employ everywhere in the Arab world because they work hard and they more careers than anybody else. So you can have a career.
0: I don't think we solved the conflict, but at least we talked about it, didn't we?
1: We look at solutions. We look at solutions that are Hegelian in the sense that they're not giving according to the current dogma. But I don't think the current dogma provides the solution because then we had a solution all along. And I don't see war when other people see war. I think the technicality of war is not war. I think war is when you're sitting at home and a bomb is falling on your house and somebody's going to storm through your house with a gun and kill you. That's war. Now, if that isn't happening, it can formally be war, but it isn't war.
0: Oh, that I agree with, although I'm not not 100% Hegelian, I guess.
1: Well, right now, Sweden is as violent as Israel, right, as a society. It is. There's more crime in Sweden than there is in Israel.
0: Yes, definitely. And
1: we don't think of Sweden as a worse zone, do we?
0: No, and also I think um, as it gets worse here, Swedes will jump on harder and harder measures to control it faster than the Israelis ever did towards the Palestinians.
1: Yeah, except the Israelis probably have better strategies because they're smarter in this sense.
0: Whereas
1: the Swedes will jump to very confusing.
0: Confusing, negative and Hopefully not too destructive, but probably very destructive measures yeah. uh, to control, over control. Thank you for listening to the Aryan. You, I am Aaron Flam. You have been listening to Alexander Bard, and he has just released his latest book, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, together with Jan Söderqvist. I want to sincerely thank you who supports this podcast on Patreon, where you can find us as the Aaron and the Jew. Until next time, have a good unit of time.